0: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the No Fluff, Actionable Marketing Podcast for marketers, marketing consultants, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to use customer research to figure out what triggers customers to buy from you. My guest today is a three times founder turned growth geek who helped product teams figure out what triggers their right fit customers buy. And she believes, just like me and a lot of people that I've been interviewing so far, that companies must be customer-obsessed to survive. So that's why I'm super happy to have Caitlin Bourgoin on board. Caitlin, welcome aboard.
1: Ooh, thank you. Thank you. I love the work that you're doing and the message that you're spreading. So I'm pumped to be here. And
0: just before we started this interview, I actually asked you how to pronounce your last name. And I had to use it uh, to pronounce it the French way, which is Bourgoin, But you also said that where, where you live, uh, they pronounce it. I'm not
1: even
0: (laughs) (laughs) sure I'm I'm ready to to continue this interview, to be honest. (laughs) So why is it so important to figure out what what triggers people to buy in the first place? Why why is it such an important activity to Indotech?
1: Well, if you don't know what triggers people to buy, then you're probably just guessing with way too much stuff. You're guessing about what channels to hang out in. You're guessing about what messaging is really going to be meaningful to your audience. You're guessing about what they want from your product so that you can actually fulfill the promise that you make in your marketing with your actual product. So not knowing what's actually triggering customers to buy just kind of leaves you out in the dark, just kind of like trying to feel your way along and You know, as marketers, we have limited budgets, we have limited time. You really want to make sure that you're pursuing the insights that are valuable and like high opportunity, not just kind of chasing stuff or trying all these different tactics, hoping stuff will work. So
0: let's dig a bit deeper in the problems that happen if you do not know what triggers people to buy. So you said, for example, you don't know where they hang out. You don't know what channels to focus on. You don't know what messaging will resonate. You don't know what type of product or what part of the product does make sense the most to them, etc., etc., What are the consequences of those issues? Starting with maybe the guesswork, like, or the not knowing what channel to focus on.
1: Well, the big consequence is that you're going to be sad. <laughs> like you're not going to get the things that you want out of your marketing, and you're going to waste an enormous amount of time. And I think that marketers, I think that we all feel really kind of, you know, I can speak for myself, but I hear this echoed a lot in the marketing community. We all feel really overwhelmed because it's just so much flying at us, and there's so much that we could be doing. So if you're not putting the upfront work in to really understanding what motivates customers, then you're going to just try a bunch of stuff. It's not going to work you're going to get deflated you're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing like a fraud like an imposter so like when you don't do this first even if you have really great knowledge of how to tactically do different marketing activities you might not get the results and that just is going to suck for you and if you work for a team it's going to suck for your team
0: and I mean, obviously that's not a bad, a good thing to talk about necessarily, but you might end up being fired or you might end up mm-hmm. underperforming. You might end up not reaching your targets. You might end up, if, if you're head of an agency or working, doing this work for clients, you might end up being, uh, not being able to come to renew contracts with clients. I mean, it's mm-hmm. consequences of not being able to focus on the right things and guessing is, are just crazy huge. And mm-hmm. to go back to what you said, which I completely agree with marketers feel absolutely overwhelmed nowadays right more than ever um and i think it's two reasons mainly number one marketers are super good at coming up with new names for old shit right coming up Mm -hmm. with new methods that are actually just rehash stuff and they would share that like crazy right so they would come up with new stuff and you you would be exposed to it a lot because marketers share like crazy compared to mm-hmm. others. And then the other side is like as a marketer, you also consume a lot more than normal people because you're on digital channels a lot. So you're on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and you just get exposed to all of this noise. That's just like, it's, it feels a bit like, you know, this antenna you have in your head. It's just like fucking signals everywhere. It just prevents you from seeing the true North. Like where do you, the fuck you need to go first. Do you feel it's, It's an accurate representation of the landscape, or am I asking you a leading question?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that one of the things that I've been thinking about is, like, I think marketers are the most over-marketed two people on the planet. Like, we are constantly selling to each other, uh, constantly selling our ideas, constantly selling um, our products that we create. I mean, if your audience is familiar with the MarTech stack, it started off, I think it was... Uh, what was it, 600 um, different products that marketers and salespeople could use. And now it's up to 8,000 and it's finally peaked and it's not growing at the same rate that it used to. But like, so imagine that, imagine being in a profession where there are, not just 8,000 people, but 8,000 companies that are paying people to go out and try to get your attention to use their product. And you're trying to navigate that and understand, you know, which, which channels are important to you, what messages are important, how do these products, be, how do these fit into your life? And because marketers are really good at hyping shit up, they make their thing sound really, really awesome. And they use really pers- uh, persuasive testimonials and really amazing stories and 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 all of that leads to you going, I'm not moving fast enough. Like I'm doing something wrong because the results aren't coming in hot and fast like that. And that can be really discouraging and it can force marketers to pursue, um, to to stop pursuing opportunities that they've been putting energy into and start chasing other things because the things that they're doing now, they don't think are yielding fast enough results. And the whole idea of fast enough, that's a whole other conversation, right?
0: And, you know, I used to feel this way for years and years and years at the start of my career. And the changing point, the trigger that flipped my focus drastically was to focus on first principles and marketing psychology and research, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And focusing on that and choosing to remove all the shit that I was being exposed to. So, for example, on my phone, I don't have any social media stuff anymore, no emails, whatever. I block all most sites when I work, so I can't just go to LinkedIn or whatever. I'm not in on Instagram. I mean, that's just to talk about myself a bit, what, what I'm doing to prevent my antenna, uh, to, mm-hmm. to be fucking fucked up by all the signals. And that changed everything because as mm-hmm. it brings clarity, doesn't it? It brings peace of mind. It brings tranquility. You know, it brings this feeling that. You know, you're going to get somewhere, you know, you need to focus on the right things and things will happen instead of just like chasing like a headless chicken, every single fucking new opportunity out there. It just, and it's so draining, isn't it as well? It's so draining emotionally, just crazy.
1: Oh, it's absolutely and totally exhausting. Like, I'm, um, I'm an introvert. I'm a pretty hardcore introvert. Like, and people, sometimes people misunderstand what introvert means. An introvert isn't that I don't like people or don't want to be around people. It's that, like, being around people consumes an enormous amount of my energy. And then I have a blast when I'm with them, but then I need to take time to recover. And I need to be alone and kind of, like, zone into my own thing. And I find that social media has the same effect on me as standing in, like, a like rock concert like being in there and the noise and all the voices and all the interactions it's draining for me as an introvert and so I like you have taken a lot of like steps to try to protect my mental and emotional energy. I don't have most of the social media platforms on my phone. I have like you, I have a blocker on. Um, so if I'm on Facebook, if I'm responding to things, I'm not actually seeing the news feed. Like I really am careful to try to control my consumption because I also know how addictive it is. And I know that I am addicted. And so, you know, I'm always trying to curb that back because those little dopamine hits you get as a marketer, like, I don't know what other profession there is where you get such a fast feedback loop. You know, it's like you post something on Twitter, you post a new blog post, whatever that might be, and immediately people are interacting with it. They're commenting on it, they're sharing it, they're liking it. And those micro kind of engagements with people can really, you know, they're great for stimulating your brain and you want more and more and more of them and so as a marketer i think we're overly exposed to that and we need to work even harder than the average person to put restraints in place so that we don't become addicted
0: right so let's go to this recipe uh, together right this process on how to gain clarity to gain your clarity back and to gain this kind of we know what we need to do there's nothing that will stop us from executing it Fuck everything else. This is what we need to do, right? So how to use customer research and figure out what triggers people to buy. Let's say you're working with a company that has no clue or that has been doing what you've described, right? They've been lost. They've been trying a few things here and there. Nothing seems to be working and you get to work with them. What is step one? What do you do with them starting on day zero or day one?
1: So the first thing I do and the reason that I'm so obsessed with uh, the work I do today is that as a marketer, the first thing you do when you're sitting in front of your client is you ask them, tell me about your customer. So you want to understand who is their customer? What does their customer care about? Why are they going after that customer segment? It all starts with the customer. And I would so often be sitting in boardrooms with teams that had raised millions or tens of millions of dollars and hearing founders squabbling over who the actual customers they serve. Um, and it really, it really showed that this lack of focus on understanding the customer and getting really clear and succinct on that customer's needs was causing them to not grow as quickly as they wanted to grow. And so, you know, all marketers will say, you, you know, you want to work strategically, not tactically, but a lot of these strategies are based on what happens in, you know, brainstorming sessions and whiteboards and it's what's coming out of the head of the team. And while there's probably some really good insight there, if you're not actually doing any type of research to inform those conversations, then you're still kind of just guessing. It feels good. The activity feels real and you can pat yourself on the back and you'll have like ideas that seem like really fucking amazing. Like this is what happens in a lot of ad agencies. You know, like I came, I started in the agency world, founded my own agency and it wasn't until I got into the startup world where it was drilled into my head that you need to do customer discovery, you need to go and talk to customers, that I realized how many projects we did and how much, how much money clients paid us to form opinions about what might be good for their customers. (laughs) And, you know, I have a lot of shame about it now, but of course I didn't know. And it wasn't as big of a conversation. And that's why even today, you know, if you're in the startup world, you're hearing about this a lot. There's a lot of traditional businesses, product-based businesses, established businesses that don't think this way, haven't been introduced to these ideas. So, when it comes to figuring out like what your customers want and getting started with that research, the first thing that I do is I get the team in a kind of rapid-fire session um, to tell me what they think they know about the customer, and I do it in a way that it's all anonymous, so they don't know who's saying what. And then I put that up in front of them and I say, "So here's what you said. Let's see how much congruency there is between what's happening here." And
0: so, how do you um, how do you collect the the answers? Through a
1: Google form. Okay. So they just all have their, like, you know, I get, it, I do it live with them in the room. It's 10 questions, a minute per question. They're all submitting their answers, and it's all anonymous. And then I just pull up the spreadsheet and show them, okay, here's what you guys are all saying. And sometimes, you know, there, there's a lot of similarities between their answers. But more often than not, there would be really big discrepancies between their answers. All right. so, and when you've got the founding team, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, let me stop you there, because that's becoming interesting. But I, I want to make sure that we are nailing the the first the first stuff. So, what I'm not going to ask you to come up with the ten questions you ask in the forum, but maybe the, the top three, the ones that are the most insightful, you think all the time. So, what questions do you like to ask them?
1: So, in this forum again, this is pulling it from the the team themselves. It would be who is your customer? Mm-hmm. You know. Why are you the best option for them? And which competitors are you the most scared of? Because it will kind of indicate like where, where they're at and like who they see as like people who could potentially come and steal their lunch. So those are some of the important ones that I would ask. Now, I should add some kind of context around this. Mm-hmm. This work that I was doing earlier in my career. So I've been working as an agent, a consultant for the last 2 years now since closing my own startup. This led to what I'm doing today. So I haven't actually been working one-on-one with clients in the past Probably in the past year, like I've done one project with a big client that has was solving a really tough problem in a really tough industry. And I wanted to help and like show them the power of qualitative research. What I do most of the time these days is I do um, training workshops that are either live or online to help people learn how to use research to build strategies. So I'm not doing a lot of consulting these days.
0: Gotcha. But I guess the steps we're going to go through together could be a, a good summary of the training you're providing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so in the training you're giving would this would you go through this and telling them answer those questions and then put them together on a board and see the discrepancy or not
1: so in the training that I'm doing, it's usually it's a group training with um, sometimes there's, you know, a, a few people from a team that's a larger company. Sometimes there's individuals that come like that are kind of earlier in their in their idea. But the first exercises that we would do is I get them to do I've got this little tool and it's something that some of your listeners might be interested in. It's called a customer ranking count cal- uh, calculator. And so basically you can come up with a few different segments that you think could be your ideal customers and then you score them on some different um, dimensions Um, and then you use that to kind of identify the segment that's the highest value segment or so you think for you. We use that to put together a really actionable customer persona it's kind of based on the jobs to be done framework and then from that we helped i help them to figure out based on this how do we make your value proposition better so that's all in one workshop so they in the beginning of the workshop they actually before anybody knows each other you've usually got 10 12 companies in the room i show i did use like a five second test um, to show their value propositions on the screen anonymously and they all rank each other and say this is what they think each other does um, and then by By the end of the workshop, it's a full-day workshop, they have reworked their value propositions based on what they've learned and really started thinking deeply about who their customer is. We do the five-second test again, everybody gets all excited because they can see that they've made measurable progress in just one day, and then I drop kind of the hammer, which is like, this is great, and this feels really, really good, and you have made progress, but these people, if they're not your customers, their opinions are valuable. Now, in the next workshop, I'm going to teach you how to test this stuff to make sure that you're actually doing it based on customer research and not based on assumptions. And the reason I do the training that way is because what I learned, when I would go straight to the, okay, here's how we're going to do the research, like they wouldn't get those kind of like, small wins that they need to stay motivated and instead they kind of feel deflated like oh so much work to get anything good (laughs) and so i've broken it up so that i can give them some micro wins that feel really good um so then they get motivated and excited to get into the research stuff
0: that's that's an interesting point because customer research sounds like a lot of work right and it it is fucking Mm -hmm. it is time consuming but it is. It the, the 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 result you get out of it is just tremendous. So maybe we can go through this, those micro wins a bit before diving into the meaty stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you ask them, if I am understanding correctly, you basically ask them to come up with a kind of a persona based on their own assumptions and opinions mm-hmm. about their business, right? And what are the key things you are asking them uh, to feel? You say it's a bit like the jobs to be done. So what are the criteria mm-hmm. that you're asking people to to feel for for their persona?
1: So um, I use uh, I make sure that they know it's a proto persona, meaning that it has not been research based. So I make the distinction of the between the two and I introduce them to the jobs to be done framework and this concept that, you know, the real motivation of what makes people buy is not the demographic information like our age and our location and our marital status. And it's not the firmographic information like the size of your company or the industry that you're in or the amount of revenue that you do annually those things can be really valuable when it comes to choosing your market but that's not what indicates why people buy and so i introduced them to that concept and then i give them the proto-persona kind of template and the proto-persona template's like okay like to find I want you to really narrow in a particular person not a particular type of company but a particular person and that's what we do that's why we use the customer ranking calculator at the beginning so they can kind of think about who those different people are and give some thought to who might be the most valuable one for them to create their persona on and then it's like describe this person tell me what a day looks like in their life like what matters to them and then it's like okay so what jobs are they trying to get done and I like the way that Strategizer in their value proposition canvas, they talk about these kind of three ways of thinking about the dimensions of what is a job. So a job, if your listeners are kind of unfamiliar, Jobs to be Done is a hotly debated <laughs> innovation framework. And kind of the the main thing you want to understand about jobs is that people don't buy things because of certain demographic stuff. They buy them because they have things, they have progress that they're trying to To make in their life. Basically, they're hiring a a product or hiring a service in the same way you'd hire somebody to work in your business to try to help them to get to that outcome. And so, when you think about it from that perspective, um, it really changes how you shape your marketing and it really changes how you design your products. And so, I like what Strategizer talks about though, with the kind of like there's dimensions to a job. So, if you let's say, for instance, that the you know functional thing you're trying to do is grow your email list, that's like the functional thing you're trying to do. But there's things involved in that that are really, really powerful from a marketing perspective, such as the social dimension, like It's how are you perceived by others when you're trying to do that thing? Because that's something that's going to matter a lot to you when you're choosing a solution. And then the personal dimension is like, how do you want to feel when you're doing the thing? So one example I like to give is like, if you think about a high heel, a stiletto high heel, there is no functional job for a stiletto high heel. Like functionally, it is, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, socially, it's all about how I want to be seen. I want to look sexy. I want to people to think that I'm successful. And then personally, it's like, I want to feel confident. And so when you understand something like that, you could come up with an innovative solution. Like there are these really cool Shoes where the heels can actually click on and off, and you can turn it from like a super high four inch heel down to like a two inch heel. If you understand the whole what your customer is trying to achieve and then what you know what barriers are stopping them from achieving it. Then you can design better products and you can market them more effectively. So um, the persona includes kind of those three dimensions. It includes like alternate solutions that they're already using. What are their buying objections? What's going to stop them from actually buying your thing? Um, what's the criteria that matters? And a few other. I have I have it on the wall right so here. So let's actually. go back.
0: Let's go back to the so the jobs to be done. We talked about it a few times. You re you explain it very well as well again. I think it's important that you, that you, that you explain it. So you, you ask, you ask your people in, in the, in the room that you're training, uh, to come up with that on their own, trying to imagine it, right? So that's mm-hmm. one thing. Second thing you said is alternative solutions. Let's go over that a bit because that's mm-hmm. also super important. So it's not alternative solutions are not direct competitors, right? They're not the no. tool that they, that, you could use that have the exact same feature than you. Those are are not alternative Mm -hmm. solutions. I mean, they could be, but not only. So can you talk me through a bit what is the difference?
1: Sure. So another example that I love to give is, so the alter, the alternative solutions are basically anything else that somebody could buy or use that would also help them to make the progress that they're seeking. So if you think about um, a lot of products, a lot of products, especially SaaS products, their largest competitor, you know, let's think about um, productivity apps, for instance, like your largest competitor, if you're a Santa might not be products like Basecamp or Rike or other productivity tools, it could be people using spreadsheets, people emailing themselves things, <laughs> people using their email inbox like a to-do list. And so when you understand how other how people are making progress and what other tools are using and why those things are working for them, what they love about them, what their satisfaction and delight is, and then also the friction that's that those tools are bringing and how they're not helping them to make progress in the way that they want to make it, that for you is really rich insight for marketing. Marketing. Also really rich insight for product design.
0: So then you also mentioned the barriers, right? What are the things that prevent people from buying? That I think is pretty self-explanatory unless you have something to add to this.
1: Well, I'm playing with this new way of describing jobs to be done, which I think could be really interesting to your audience. Like, Are you familiar with Super Mario? I am. Yeah, so you've probably seen there's this kind of uh, classic graphic, which is um, it's a little Mario and then there's um, the magic mushroom or the fire flower that makes Mario be able to throw fire flowers. And there's this kind of, uh, there's, um it's there's little notes and it says, you know, people aren't buying the fireflower. The fireflower is the thing you sell. That's actually not what they're buying. What they're buying is the ability to like, you know, do rad stuff like throwing uh fireballs. And I think that really when it especially when it comes to innovation, and a lot of the teams that I'm teaching um are marketers, but they're also um teams that are trying to build really innovative products, trying to disrupt markets. Um, Thinking about being able to throw the fireballs is one piece of it. But really, when you take it a step further, why does Mario want to throw fireballs in the first place? Well, he has to make it through all of these levels, fighting all of these bad guys to try to get to Bowser's castle to, to rescue Princess Peach, right? That's his actual desired outcome, to rescue Princess Peach because they, he loves her and he wants to be with her. And so when you think about how to create a better solution, it could be making a better fireball in better fire flower or could be looking at things that kind of get the same job done in other ways like the the mushroom or the star or Or throw it or the yoshi exactly or and I love to use this example if you really want to be disruptive it could be giving Mario a warp whistle because the warp whistle actually is a way better solution than a lot of those other things because imagine that he could warp through all of those levels that he has to do right now and skip those and get right to Bowser's Castle right? Not as much fun for us playing the game but the warp whistle is a real innovation so that's a good way of thinking about jobs to be done.
0: Yeah I'm glad you're talking about it because um, this is why the example of you know you're not buying a drill you're buying a hole in the wall i don't Mm -hmm. really connect with it because Mm -hmm. exactly the same you're Mm -hmm. not actually buying a hole either you're buying a hole to actually put a fucking painting on but actually you're not really buying a painting you're buying Mm -hmm. maybe a better room so it gives you better status so when your friends come (laughs) over you can see all your nice paintings right so exactly the issue that i have with this though is that sometimes with this type of thinking you go too far Right.
1: hundred
0: And it's difficult to know where to stop. So maybe yeah. you have some, do you have any insight on that? Like where to stop? Cause you can go so far to the point that where you're selling a dream, you're selling them better friends or, do you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that, I think there's two ways of thinking. That's why I like some of the work that strategizers done because, um, Some people don't like their outlook on it, but I like the idea of thinking about the progress people are trying to make from a functional perspective and from the social and personal, because you can't just ignore the functional parts. Like if they've decided, like from a marketing perspective, like, yeah, you might um, show somebody, you might run an ad if you're DeWalt, for instance, who sells drills and show a new homeowners and they've just moved in and they are, you see all the work that they're doing and they're putting all this effort in trying to make their home nice. And then they just like, you know, I think the example that Alan Clement gives is like the New homeowner needs to keep going and borrowing his father in law's drill. And it becomes a bit of a pain because he's waiting to, for his father in law to kind of lend him the drill and he has to return it every time. So eventually he goes out and he buys his own drill. And then you could see, like, kind of in this ad, how it would be like them drilling the hole in the wall and hanging that final picture before a housewarming party, right? Like, that's telling a story to a prospective customer from a marketing perspective. But when that customer shows up at Home Hardware or Rona or wherever they go because they've been inspired. they're like yeah i also need a drill like then you have to think about the functional stuff because like that stuff's really going to matter at that stage like like you know what is the price point like how does it work like all of that stuff matters too and looking from an innovator's perspective at how to make a better drill might be really important or showing the um the person buying the little like sticky hooks instead of a drill, you know, looking at the drill and then going for the sticky hooks. Like there's lots of from a marketer's perspective, you can extrapolate up too far with jobs to be done thinking, where it's like everybody just wants to be liked, right? You yeah. <laughs> don't want to go that far <laughs> because then you're up in marketing nowhere land. <laughs>
0: all right Okay. So we went through the jobs to be done from a functional and emotional perspective. We've gone through Alternative solutions. We've gone through the barriers. Is there anything important that you like to, to go through before we actually say how the fuck do you come up with this information?
1: Um, the other thing that's really important to um, to think through is like what are the what are their challenges with their current solutions? So not just what are their current solutions, but what are their challenges with their current solutions? So it's like there's objections to them buying your thing, but you also really want to think about what are their um, problems with their current solutions because that's really rich from a marketing perspective. If something else is awesome and amazing but too expensive, then you can talk about your thing and say how it's awesome and amazing and does a lot of the same things, but it's you know more affordable because you have a different model, whatever. So those are kind of of the things that typically I have uh, people going through the training thinking about when they're putting together the proto-persona. And the purpose of doing those is really to get them thinking deeply about their customers in this way. And because a lot of the teams that come through my workshop are either technical people who are building, you know, a software product who might not be marketers or newbie marketers that just joined a team that maybe haven't worked in software before or small business owners who don't, who aren't marketers, right? They're running their business, but they're not marketers. Like they often have not ever thought this deeply about their customers. So my big goal is to start off by getting them to think deeply about their customers and showing them, giving them some major aha moments of thinking about why their customers actually make decisions. So that's kind of step one.
0: Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. So I think if you're listening to this right now, you're probably wondering, how the fuck do I get to this answer then? Because that's always good to understand the jobs to be done from a functional emotional perspective or alternative solutions. But how do you actually come up with this information where you're fairly certain that this is it, right? This is is true and I can use this information for messaging, for marketing strategy and whatnot. We don't have, like, obviously, an no, uh, entire day to come mm-hmm. up with those. So you might have to select one or two things for people to do that will have the highest impact, right? In yeah. Compared to the efforts required. So you had to pick one thing or two things to do from a research perspective what would they be
1: the number one thing i'd recommend doing and it's the thing that will take a little bit more time but it will yield the most insight is to do um, one-on-one interviews with either your current customers or people who you think represent your ideal buyer Um, and when you do those you want to talk to them ideally when they have started using um, either your solution or maybe a competitor's solution in the last um, couple of months and the reason why is because i like to say like when people do customer interviews, um, depending on the way that you do the interview, the questions that you ask and how you kind of analyze what you learn from it, it can very much be a garbage in garbage out problem where people ask shitty questions, they bias their whole interview. They're basically just asking questions that they think they already know the answer to or they are going to tell them what they want to hear. And so then they get a bunch of like what they think is insight. Um, but in fact, it's totally biased and it's not helpful. Um So the big thing that I recommend people do when they decide to do um, these one-on-one interviews is the reason you want to talk to people who have recently decided to buy a new solution or switched from their old solution to your solution um, is because they're going to have a really good memory of what actually led to the buying decision, which is really important because people are not databases. You can't just get in there and ask them a bunch of questions and think that you're just going to pull up all the information. A lot of the things that we do in um, the day-to-day of how we make decisions are not that conscious to us like and so you really want to focus on a a specific event of them buying something and get them to tell you the story around what led to that purchasing decision because that's where they're going to start talking about the triggers they're going to start talking about well the first time i realized i had this problem was because x happened Super, super valuable insight from a marketer's perspective Um, because as you do a number of interviews, what you start to see are patterns, patterns of when they notice the problem, and usually once somebody identifies, okay, the thing I'm doing today isn't really working, they might not immediately go searching on Google or immediately go looking for solutions. They just are feeling the friction. They're just feeling like, ugh, this isn't really working. And at that point, they'll start noticing things around them. So they'll maybe it's a blog post that somebody wrote that they'll go and read, or maybe it's um, you know a billboard that they see when they're driving down the street, but they'll start to see things that before they wouldn't have been paying attention to, before they could have seen them and they would have just ignored them. Um, so that's really great from a market perspective, because even though they might not be ready to buy right now, they're starting to pay attention. And as a marketer, the best thing we can get from potential customers is their attention. And so it allows you to have the opportunity to try to figure out how you can get in front of them with something compelling, before maybe one of your competitors does and then typically other triggers happen triggers happen that make them realize oh shit like what i'm using right now really isn't working i need to start actively looking for a solution and then they'll start actively searching and this is where a lot of marketers usually first get in front of somebody because they're doing you know keyword they're doing um, keyword research to understand what terms that they should be going after yada yada um and then it comes into the decision process where it's like, I've, I've figured out a few options that I might use and I'm trying to decide which one's the right for me. And I'm like using my buying criteria, figuring it out, and then they make the decision. So like all along that buying journey, there's so much insight that as a marketer you can use and you can use it to figure out like what type of content you should be creating or maybe you're using um, uh, product-based marketing stuff like uh, HubSpot's really good at this like they've created a bunch of like uh they talk about pqls or product qualified leads like getting people that want to create like a An email signature is like oftentimes the first touch that people get with HubSpot because they have this little free email signature tool. So, like, figuring out these little things and that your customers are doing and using those to inform um, exciting, creative uh, marketing strategies. And the way that you get that is from pulling the story out, not from asking people for their opinions and not being like, yeah that's the big piece the big takeaway
0: so thanks for going through all of that makes total sense now you mentioned at the very start of this explanation that you know it's difficult not to be biased so (laughs) let's take the situation where you have been in touch with customers that fit the criteria you mentioned and you are in front of them and it's like minute zero of the conversation how to make sure that you're not introducing any bias to the conversation and what are the questions Mm -hmm. you like to ask
1: so the questions, I don't usually have a script. I don't have a set of questions I'm always going to ask. And the reason is, is that the richness comes from their stories. And the best way to get to those stories and to avoid bias is basically to kind of just, as they, they'll often tell you kind of like a surface level answer. She'll ask somebody a question and like, for instance, like, you know, when did you first start thinking that you might need a solution like ours? And they'll usually give you kind of like a high level surface answer. Like, oh, well, we knew that we needed to do more with our And blah blah blah. If it's a hot jars product, for instance, right? And it's like, well, take me back to like, was there a specific conversation? Like, what? Like, can you think of the first time that you really started thinking about that? What you want to do is kind of get them to continue to drill in and give you more of the stories behind their buying decision and some magic questions when trying to to drill in are kind of one of my favorite sayings is can you tell me more about that because it's usually when you ask that question that they get into the emotional or interesting stuff that can really be good to leverage or um, sometimes people will go on tangents and they'll start talking about things that are kind of like unrelated to what you're interested in and like you can see that they're kind of going down another path. So you can go back to like the thing you wanted to know about and say, hey, can like a few minutes ago, you said this. Can we like loop back there and kind of dig into that a little bit more? But really what you're trying to do is really make them feel comfortable in sharing with you. Because again, because humans aren't databases, <laughs> like if they don't feel comfortable in the conversation with you and they're not starting to trust you and, and enjoy the dialogue, they're going to give you short uninteresting answers and you're going to feel like it's a waste of time. So you really want to like, you know, prepare them for what this type of interview is going to be. And it's like, it's not going to be like those surveys, you know, when people call you from the, like the, like the, your local, um, Cable company, and it's like, would you have time for a survey? And they're gonna ask you like the 10 questions and no variation. It's like, no, like this is a conversation between you and them. And it's a conversation of trying to understand their buying journey or trying to understand their decision process and their challenges and problems with the current solutions they're using. And what's so neat about this, and I don't like to like pitch it this way because it can lead people to, to kind of like doing it for the wrong reasons, is so often those people that you're talking to, let's say that they're not your customer. They're somebody using somebody else's product you will help them to think through what actually motivated their decision a way that they probably hadn't thought through it before and help them to kind of like connect some dots that they might not have mentally connected before and most often then they're like Oh crap, tell me more about your thing. And so it can sometimes become a sales opportunity, although that's not the reason you should do it. And if they do want to hear more about your thing, you should be like, "Okay, like we'll talk more about that like at the end, but like yeah. I really want to make sure I don't bias you right now." So like hold your horses and don't try to sell your thing too much, but know that Just because of the nature of these conversations, it can sometimes go there.
0: So let's unbundle a bit what you said, which is super interesting. I think in journalism, they're being taught to never trust the first answer people give Mm -hmm. to a journalist, right? So this is the same principle. You ask a question first, you know it's going to be bullshit anyway, and you re-ask it. So now, well, tell me a bit more, like, specifically, right? And this is what I do on the podcast as well, right? So you could talk about something, but I'm going to go back to it and ask you more specifically, uh, you tend to be an expert in your own stuff. So you talk about it in a high level perspective. You think everyone understands or you mm-hmm. think people can read your mind, but they can't. So you need to be specific, right? So uh, another thing that I've, I've done in interviews or I've seen others do that I, I was I could feel was not the right approach was um, basically starting and say, okay, I'm going to interview you. And here's the first question. So let me read the first question. What is the channel where you spend the most time on? You know, so do not treat your interview like a fucking job interview where people just read question after question. And I'm glad you said that you don't really use a script because I don't use a script for what we're talking about right now as well. I have one question and that's it. And it's the same principle. So you need to have a conversation. You need to be genuinely interested in what they say. And you don't want to make them uncomfortable like they feel they are being questioned by the police, right? So Mm -hmm. don't say stuff like, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Or here's the first question, and here's the second question. No, just ask the first question, which is again, uh, t- take take me back to the first time you ever thought about using a solution like ours, right? And then mm-hmm. you just ask for specifics.
1: Mm-hmm. And then you're just trying to draw the story out of them. And when you understand that your goal is to understand the buying journey, then you can kind of continue to bot to pull that story out of them. And so when you like, you know, as a signal of when you should go deeper, when somebody tells you something that feels like it's an opinion, um, or somebody says something, like what a great way to kind of make sure that you're getting to the truth, because oftentimes we'll say things that make us sound good, right? Like, we'll answer a question in a way that makes us sound good. So if you were to say to me, like Caitlin, what are you going to do in the next, um, month to you know lose weight if that's what a goal goal that I have right I'm really well I'm going to like exercise and diet and do keto and yada yada yada. and then if you go okay what did you do last month to try to lose weight it's like oh I ate a million hamburgers like so focusing on things that they have done is going to be way more insightful and so when they tell you something that sounds opinion-based a great way to kind of like pull into and like drill into whether that's real is go oh so tell me about that like saying the last month like how many times did you do that And oftentimes they'll go, is like, oh, well, like, yeah, well, in the last month, I didn't really do it. I actually did more of this because of blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, oh, so tell me about that. So you'll get kind of neat things when you don't accept those surface answers. But you got to be thoughtful. And it takes practice because, again, because people aren't databases, they don't like to be. You have to know when to like, kind of like build things up so that they're comfortable with you drilling a little deeper because people don't like to be interrogated either, right? So you can't just be like, tell me more, 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 because like they'll feel like they're being a bit interrogated. So there is a, you know, a nuance and a skill to build up in this.
0: And uh, I, I talked to uh, Els Geralt recently for another project, uh, and she's the head of UX for, for a big uh, user experience agency in the Netherlands. She speaks at every single marketing event out there. And she was talking about her, her way to do usability testing in person. And she was saying that the first 10 minutes are basically bullshit stuff she doesn't need just to mm-hmm. ease people in. So this yeah. is probably something you can do for interviews. You ask them easy questions... You you go through the stuff in, ba- in in basics term and then you come back once you feel that you're laughing a bit, they're laughing, mm-hmm. they're feeling comfortable, and then you go back to, okay, talk me back to, like, you remember 10 minutes ago you said that. Now, tell me the actual truth. I mean, you don't say it this way, but you basically yeah. breathe down.
1: Oh, absolutely. I did an interview with, um, it's a friend of mine who's running a startup and I wanted to understand, you know, I I eat my own dog food. I'm doing these interviews all the time. And I wanted to understand what led him to really investing in doing um, more qualitative research. I knew that he'd actually taken on a larger project recently. And the first 40 minutes, he was kind of like, he was telling all these things and he was kind of like touching on it, but he didn't really go Deep. He didn't give me the emotional stuff, like you know, that's the stuff that from a marketing perspective is so rich. And he was kind of like talking it through and talking through. And then finally, after about 40 minutes, he goes, "You know what really happened?" And I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "I was sitting at, awake at night, could not sleep. I just knew I didn't know who the right customers were. I knew we needed to figure the shit out. And so I slacked my team and I told them I was sick and I went to a coffee shop at six in the morning and I just started like do like banging out how I was going to approach the research. And I was like. That story is really powerful because, like, you can see the kind of, like, the pain and, like, he's sitting awake at night. Like, that's a classic founder story, right? But it's, like, way more interesting as to, like, what, what was the actual trigger that made him say it's time? It was this, I know I don't have it figured out yet and lying and literally lying awake, like feeling guilt and fear and lying to his team because he wants to be a leader in their eyes. He wants them to feel like he has the answer. So like lying to his team so he could make time to do this exercise. Those types of stories from a market perspective, if you get creative, are really, really powerful.
0: And you can you can visualize the campaigns you can do around it, right? Straight away. You (laughs) can visualize this founder in this bed or in her bed with a mm-hmm. bubble that says, you know, exactly the quote that you, he basically told you, right? I mean, you can reuse that yeah. almost verbatim, which is which is the power of, of research. So yeah. you've talked about something a few minutes ago, see what I'm doing there, <laughs> uh, where you talk about like, okay, not being biased, we talked about that. You talked about how to run interviews, we talked about that, the question to ask. Now, the thing we haven't talked about is how to make sense of it.
1: That right? is really important, really, really important. And so... Um, the, you know, the particular type of um, training that I do is around understanding what triggers your customers to buy. That is one particular type of interview you could do. There are various approaches to that, depending on um, who you're talking to. If you're talking to people who recently bought, you can do it one way. If you're talking to people who are getting the job done doing using something else, but they maybe didn't recently buy, that's a different thing. Um, but what really matters, again, this whole idea of garbage in, garbage out, if you end up with all this data, which is what qualitative research is going to give you, maybe you're going to have audio recordings from your interviews, maybe you're going to have notes, maybe you're going to have you're actually going to get it all transcribed and actually go through it and like code it, which in researcher world means kind of like finding pieces of it and like gathering kind of things that are meaningful as, into categories, highlighting them and like categorizing them. But if you have no idea how to actually analyze what you're hearing or what you're listening for, it's really, really challenging because like this isn't like quantitative. It's not like one and one is always two. Qualitative is hard. So you really need to know what it is you're listening. For. And so I'm always working on refining my kind of like analysis process, but the things that I'm, uh, that I'm at this point kind of encouraging people to be listening for. And I actually did a, um, A webinar recently, which is going to be released tomorrow. Which, but I don't know when this will go out. But um, it'll be released mid uh, May with "Forget the Funnel," where I actually kind of list through these different things. Because you can use these whether you're doing interviews or you can use them whether you're kind of like doing online um, observation of prospective customers. But the things you're listening for and the things that you're trying to pull out and tease out of your data um, is the jobs. So, like, you know, what is it that you that they're trying to get done? What is the progress that they're trying to make? what are their pains currently, pains with their current solutions, pains with trying to make, you know, what the pains with trying to make the progress they're trying to make? What are the things that they want to gain? What are the desired outcomes? If they can actually get the thing done, what does success look like and why does that matter? Um, you want to be thinking about what are the alternate solutions that they're using, right? Because when you think about those, you can kind of assess your own thing. You want to be listening for buying objections, huge from a marketer's perspective, also helpful from a product design perspective. Um, you want to understand their buying criteria. So they might have this like criteria. Where it's like, I want to use this thing and it needs to interact with this other tool that we use. So like, you're listening for that. You want to understand what they, what, um, if it, they're using a product now, what delights them about it? What do they love about the product they're using now? Why is it great? Um, what friction are they having? You know, what isn't working about it? Um, and what else is in that list? Uh, those are the key ones. Like those are the key things. Oh, and the other thing that I always am um, looking for is what I call swipeable copy. Um, and know a lot of those things are going to be your swipeable copy. Like when somebody says the pain that they have with their current solution, that's often like you can just take those words verbatim and be like, do you struggle with blue, 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 blue. And like, it's exactly the thing that they're saying. Yes, I definitely struggle with that. But I'll also sometimes find things that don't fit into those other categories, but just are like really good. And then like, I'll save that and like a swipe file for later. So I use those categories when I'm analyzing all of my data to kind of as a high level to go through it. And I find things that fit into those categories. And then I kind of subcategorize, I think, what are the trends inside of that? How many people said this particular pain? How many people said that it wasn't fast enough was a problem, right? Because if one person said that, but 20 people said that their pain was that it was too expensive, then it's more important for me to talk about the fact that our things cost effective versus the fact that it's fast. You know what I mean?
0: So you would get you would get those those interviews transcribed. You would then run through them one by one and read through every line and create I visualize like you have two screens, one screen where you have the the, the transcript, another screen where you have an Excel spreadsheet, where you've pre-created the categories, right? Where you you basically take the little snippet of text that are um, either a swipeable copy or just add an X to the category, such as, uh, as an objection, the price, a lot of people say price is too expensive. You don't need to rewrite that. You can just put a, a little box that just counts the number of people who said that, right? So it sounds like in terms of the spreadsheet, you would have a tab for each category. Uh, so projection. I don't use a
1: spreadsheet. Um, I use a dovetail app, which is a it's specifically designed for qualitative research. But as I like to say to other marketers, that can be totally overkill for you depending on what you're trying to do. Like I use it that way because like it's. I do enough of this that it saves me a lot of time to use a true qualitative research um, product. But if you don't, if you aren't using a true qualitative research project product, one thing that I actually like using um, is Airtable. And so what I'll do is I'll have kind of um, I'll create an Airtable base and I'll have a a form view of that base and it will have kind of like some of my common questions. And then at the end, I'll have a like key takeaways thing where I can kind of put in the things that were that mattered from that interview. So I'm kind of collecting them as I'm on the call because not everyone is going to take the time to, to... record it transcribe it like it depends on your purposes like it depends on how you plan to use the data but a lot of people probably aren't going to go to that effort because it takes too long and i'd rather see people do it quick and dirty and actually do it than not do it at all because they yeah, like don't want to go through and code everything
0: especially if you're listening to this and it's the first time i'd like the trigger to making you do customer research is listening to Caitlin right now and you don't want to be overwhelmed it sounds like Airtable, which is a f- like basically it's like a mix between Excel and the database and a few other stuff like forms. So you have a form view where you just enter and input the answer as you go, as you're listening to them. And then automatically table will compile them once mm-hmm. you have a few, right? And so you can yeah, see exactly. at a glance the fuck is happening. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And I've got a neat Airtable view that can feed into the same one that I use on my I basically have a form which is like if I see something I say in the wild. So like if I see somebody um, commenting on about a competitor's product about one of the things they hate about it, or um, if I see somebody um, talking about what they love about our product, for instance, I'll kind of copy and paste that I have a little form view that I can grab from my browser. I also have a shortcut on my mobile phone. And I'll pop that in there. And I'll categorize it again using those high level categories so that I'm saving it for later because that again the voice of the customer the actual words that they're using can be really great and from a marketer's perspective when you're trying to get team buy-in on things it can be really helpful for you to be able to go here's what a customer said about x y and z versus you going in my opinion I think that we should do this so like gathering those from the actual customer and being able to show them to your team depending on what project it is like why you're trying to get their buy-in can be super handy.
0: Uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for going through this step-by-step step with me. Yeah, you went through a lot of details. Perhaps you could send a template of your Airtable stuff and we can add it to the episode show notes Absolutely. And send it via email to people. It should be, could be quite fun to see. Uh, but I have three questions to ask you before I let you go. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think uh, marketers should learn today uh, that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, or even 50 years?
1: I think that the One of the most undervalued skills, not that it's undervalued, but I I think that it's a big one to learn and really, really powerful is copywriting. Like, I think that marketers, you know, being a a strong copywriter is important and the way that you become a strong copywriter is through customer empathy and understanding your customer. So I would say it's something that you need to work on. Some people innately have that skill and they're great at it, but being better, because it's going to allow you to make your argument internally um, and also make, you know, be more persuasive with customers.
0: And what are the three best resources you'd recommend, uh, listeners? Could be anything from um, a book, podcast, conference, anything.
1: It's unrelated to marketing, but one of my favorite resources, because I think you can so apply it to marketing, is the Atomic Habits book by James Clear. I think that when it comes to a lot of what we do in marketing, it's about developing habits. It's about, you know, because you don't get those immediate results right away sometimes. And so you have to be able to figure out how to build recurring habits to get you to the success that you want over time. Because a lot of it builds. So I would say that book was a game changer for me. Another resource that I think would be really good There's so many great ones, I would say, depending on what you know, if you're trying to build a high growth company, I think that the um, CXL blog is really outstanding. Um, They deliver so much really like great, deep articles. um, And they, of course, have training as well. But I think that their content is really like their blog is just like Fantastic! They really go deep. Um, and the biggest, one of the biggest ones for me would be find your community, find a community of like-minded people to be hanging out with and talking to. So for me, that's really been Twitter lately. And so the resource of actually having other marketers that you can quickly engage with, like kind of talk to, jam ideas off of, and just support each other and feel like you're not alone, hugely important. So I'd say, yeah, finding a community of other marketers.
0: But Caitlin, yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to. You. Thanks for going through all of the stuff with me in details. I know that. People listening got a lot of value out of it. I I genuinely mean it. So where can listeners connect with you and pester you and ask you questions?
1: So best place to probably find me and be able to like directly like ask me questions would be on Twitter. So I'm at uh, Kate, K-A-T-E, B-O-U-R. And from there, you can find links to my website and my online training program and like in-person training programs. Fabulous. Awesome. Well, thank you so much.
0: You Likewise. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right.
0: Have a great day, everyone. That's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not gonna spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet and we always, So thank you so much once again, and au revoir!